Hey everybody, welcome to The Briefing Room and happy Friday. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. Great to have you with us. Mary Alice Parks, our deputy political director is here. The president's gone, Congress is gone. Time for a weekend, I think, Mary Alice. <laughs> We're ready to be gone. The president, uh, yeah, we are. Uh, no. Off to the weekend shortly after this, but first, a lot of big headlines to bring to you today. The president down on the southern border after a week of suspense uh, and back and forth over whether he would or would not shut down the border in its entirety. We talked yesterday about the fact that he backed off from that threat, but Mary Alice, he's down at the border in Calexico, California right now, um, talking up about what he might do in the coming months, and I, I would suspect we we may see some further back and forth on this as we get closer to the campaign. Right. The president wants to make sure this continues to be a big part of the conversation. And look, he's down there promoting uh, what he says is a piece of a new wall. There's been a lot of controversy about whether that's true. He's in front of a piece of border um, structure that was a part of a project started under the Obama administration, but he says that his team is the one that got it done, did revamp it, did make it taller, bigger, stronger. That's part of the message he wants to promote. Yeah, he increased the size of that wall from, I think, uh, something like seven feet to 14 feet steel bollard, but you're right, it wasn't brand new construction. There had been a structure there. You see that plaque that has his name on it. Uh, the president uh, taking some pictures by that this afternoon. Our Romina Puga uh, is on the ground in Calexico, California. Romina, there you are with the wall. Uh, how are residents reacting there to the president's visit today? Hey, Devin. Yeah, we're here at that same wall at the border in Calexico. And locals here have been protesting since about 8 this morning. I want to show you. You can still see them over there. You can see they put up a giant inflatable uh, baby President Trump balloon. And they're saying oh that the, the only positive to come from the president's visit is uh, bringing attention to the community's needs. One man said they're not going to talk about a fake crisis for his base. Instead, they want to talk about what they need here. Now, originally they were protesting the border closure, but the president has walked that back this week, now giving Mexico a year uh, and saying that if they don't follow through, he will put a 25% tariff on cars made in Mexico brought into the U.S. And if that doesn't work, he will then close the border. But again, this is the third time he's made these threats, so people are questioning uh, the seriousness of those threats now. And he was um, meeting in a roundtable with local inf uh, law enforcement officials. Now he's at the wall visiting, like you guys said, the reconstructed wall. It's not necessarily new, and you can see it here. It's 30 feet high. The new section goes for about two miles, has barbed wire on the bottom and on the top. Devin. Thanks, Romina Puga, for us uh, on the border in Calexico, California, where the president uh, is this afternoon. Thanks for that, Romina. Uh, I'm going to go down to our White House reporter, Jordan Phelps, uh, who's been following all the developments this week, the whiplash we've been talking about, Jordan. Um, you know, the president, before he left to go to California today, talked about um, wanting to take a tougher line, Jordan. He seemed to suggest that he uh, still had some potential moves up his sleeve uh, to keep this discussion going. Yeah, Devin, what we see the president doing here is really covering uh, for his walk back here. Uh, he told uh, reporters this morning that he hasn't changed his mind at all. But Devin, that's just not the case. To do a quick recap, last Friday, the president said in all likelihood he'd be closing the border this week. Then his senior aides took to the Sunday shows to say he was not bluffing and it would take something dramatic for him not to follow through on that threat. Uh, but then just yesterday, the president said that he was going to give Mexico 
Mexico a year. Uh, he's now denied that he has changed his timeline. He's saying that he just thinks now that tariffs would be more effective than a border closure. But, Devin, we know that the president's own economic advisors have been sounding the alarm here at the White House about the dramatic economic repercussions that this move would have. He was warned. And ultimately, Devin, it looks like uh, he made the calculation that the economic costs would just be too great. Uh, the president has is riding very much on a strong economy politically, and he doesn't need to uh, another self-inflicted wound as he prepares to go into 2020. And some other breaking reporting, uh, Jordan, uh, before we let you go, uh, on the head of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's the agency uh, that does uh, interior enforcement in this country against uh, immigration violations. The president had nominated a new head to that agency, but then today, before he left, confirmed that he had withdrawn that nomination and wants to go, in his words, in a tougher direction. What's that all about? Yeah, Devin, it looks like this move might have uh, come from Stephen Miller, the immigration hardliner within his administration, who's uh, really been the architect of a lot of these very tough policies on immigration we've seen. Uh, so it looks like he got to the president on this one. So uh, a change to come there. All right, Jordan Phelps for us at the White House. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, meanwhile, the president, <laughs> Mary Ellis, also has his eyes on a potential Democratic contender who's in town today having a, a coming out party, if you will, after days of some criticism. Joe Biden, the former vice president, uh, speaking at a convention here, and President Trump had some um, has had some playful things to say about him uh, this oh, afternoon. The, the two of them are already trading barbs. You can only imagine what it would be like if they were to go head to head. The president tweeting uh, basically a spoof photo of uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden responding and saying, I'm glad to see you're as presidential as ever. The president then on the South Lawn saying he doesn't see Joe Biden as a threat. Uh, these two men obviously have no problem tangling. Let's bring in our resident Biden expert, Molly Nagel. She is uh, our reporter tracking the Biden would-be campaign. Molly, great to see you. You were at this event today, the former vice president speaking for the first time publicly after those allegations that he had made a number of women feel uncomfortable. How was it he received uh, by this crowd of union uh, union members. Yeah, so he was speaking in front of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. So this is really uh, uh, Biden's bread and butter. These are union workers, a predominantly white crowd, um, majority men. Um, and he was received with open arms. Now, you know, he made some comments. Uh, he reference, made reference to uh, some of the, uh, the women who have come out and said that they were uncomfortable by his actions. But for the most part, he stuck to a speech about the middle class and pushing forward on... Uh, dignity for workers, which is a big message of his. I mean, he is getting quite a lot of blowback for those jokes that you referenced. He said that he didn't mean to make light of the situation, but that was exactly what he did when he came up on that stage. He very much, in front of this crowd, was willing to make a joke about those uh, those women who said that he made them feel uncomfortable in those And moments. yet, when you caught, caught up with him afterwards, Molly, you asked him, or a number of reporters asked him, are you sorry that four of these women felt uncomfortable and many others by your behavior. He had kind of an interesting answer. Right, and, and he didn't out and out apologize. He said, I'm sorry I didn't understand more. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for any of my intentions. I'm not sorry for anything I've ever done. So he's really uh, focusing in here on his intention, that he never intended to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Now, a number of the women that I spoke to who have spoken out publicly against Biden um, have said that they they really want an apology from yeah. him. They want him to acknowledge uh, that it was wrong that they felt uncomfortable. Mary Alice, I, I want to put you on the spot with your analysis hat here. You are plugged in um, 
certainly in the 2020 Democratic field, but supporters of Joe Biden are saying, look, this is very unfair. He's not even in the race yet, number one. Number two, here's a man who's dedicated himself to supporting women, victims of sexual violence all his life. Nobody really contests that here. Is this, is this political correctness gone awry? Uh, when it yeah, comes I mean, to policing I, behavior? I think that's probably part of the political calculation that he made coming up on that stage, making those jokes. In some ways, he seemed a lot like the president to me in that moment, sort of implying that, just like you said, maybe things are too PC, that, that this has gone too far, that let's not take anything too seriously. But there are others in the Democratic Party that say that is a sign that he is out of touch, and these are exactly the kinds of issues about female-male dynamics in the workplace, about the, the a Me Too conversation, and more about a generational moment for the Democratic Party that they say he is just not paying attention to. A number of women, indeed, making that point. One of them we spoke with here in the briefing room just a short time ago. Sophie Karasik, Molly introduced us to her. She has uh, gone public after an encounter with Joe Biden in 2016. Here it is backstage at the Oscars, of all places, where they were making a presentation to raise awareness about sexual violence against women. Sophie Karasik went public uh, in the Washington Post and then with us explaining how that experience backstage made her highly uncomfortable. Here's her story. It wasn't, it wasn't sexual. It was similar to if like you're getting comfort from a grandfather or father or somebody who you know well and you know we had just met so it just actually caught me quite off guard and i it was hard to think about anything actually there's one of the other one of the other people who came forward said this too who had a similar experience where it was just like you're, you kind of freeze in a way because you just you don't know yeah. what to think about what's happening. Did you ever so, let him know that it made you feel so uncomfortable? I, I understand you also met him subsequently at a, at a different event. So it was a totally different time. It was before Me Too had exploded onto the national stage. And as an organizer, what I had been trying to do for the past few years was to help the country understand that sexual harm was a national problem on college campuses. And so there wasn't actually a whole lot of space for a discussion on a more nuanced level about personal space and boundaries and what people are comfortable with in terms of physical intimacy. So it wasn't something that I even knew how to articulate in that moment. And in the years since, I, as I say in the piece, have had a lot of conflicting feelings about it. He's done a lot of really great work for women over the years that I don't want to discredit. Didn't want to discredit then, don't want to discredit now. But it was something that did make me feel uncomfortable, and I avoided thinking about it until fairly recently when people would see the picture and in my house and just make me feel really uncomfortable by saying like it looks like he's going to kiss you or like how did you feel about that and I would just kind of like brush it off and avoid thinking about it. Yesterday uh, he came out and he said that he would be much more mindful of his behavior. Um, he did make light of some of these encounters though just just today in his first public appearance. would like to get your reaction to that. Take a look. And uh, I just want you to know I had permission to hug Lonnie. I, 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 uh, I don't know, man. 
Do you th any reaction to, to, to that, uh, making light of those situations today? He says he was just joking, um, but uh, wanted to get your take. What matters is the impact that his actions and words are having. Of course, his intentions matter too, but it's not that the impact doesn't matter at all. And I think that contrary to the, the clip that was released the other day, joking about this shows that actually he doesn't get it, that there are so many people that have reached out to me after the article went up the other day and the op-ed went up and just said, you know, thank you so much for putting into words what I felt for such a long time but didn't know how to say. And it's okay. just like, it feels hurtful to feel like that is somehow funny. So our thanks to Sophie Karasek for sharing her story. And Molly, I guess all of this will be take on so much more significance, obviously, and will be talked about for some time if he gets into the race. I mean, what's the latest we're hearing about whether Joe Biden will actually run? Yeah, he commented on that today. He was asked what was the holdup? Why wasn't he getting in the race? And he said that he's getting everything in place. He has to be very careful about the words he uses. He doesn't want the clock to start ticking on uh, his candidacy. Uh, but it's clear that this isn't deterring him from entering this 2020 race. Uh, you know, Joe Biden is known to blow past a deadline, so <laughs> it's hard to put a timeline on it, but I, I would not be surprised to see him in this race uh, every, this month. Every indication is he's going there. Molly Nagel, we know you'll be on the trail. Thank you so much. Great to see you uh, with that reporting. Appreciate it very much. Uh, speaking of the 2020 candidates, Mary Alice, you know this because you've been tracking a number of them. I have been making the rounds up to the four-day conference in New York City of the National Action Network. That's mm -hmm. a civil rights organization founded by uh, Al Sharpton, talking a lot about issues of civil rights, uh, the African-American community and this issue of reparations right. uh, for slavery. A really interesting conversation of the past couple of days. It's been a big conversation already erupting in the presidential primary. Folks like Reverend Sharpton, but, but also average voters that are making a point of raising this question in gaggles at press events from Iowa to New York to South Carolina, wanting to know where the candidates stand on it and if they have concrete ideas to address it. I think almost a half dozen or close to a dozen uh, of the Democratic candidates have gone to the conference to make their pitch. Uh, our Armando Garcia uh, was there today covering uh, the events. Armando, um, great to see you. So how, how were these candidates received today? What sort of, what's your big takeaway so far uh, from the conference? Guys, thanks for having me. I've been speaking to attendees all day today, and I can say that every single candidate here has been received pretty warmly. Uh, the candidates have focused on criminal justice reform, uh, racial inequalities, and that is exactly what people here want to talk about. Now, I did want to highlight one key moment here today. Senator Kamala Harris's hard stance on crime as Attorney General of California has come under fire in the past, but today she said her experience there would guide her at the helms of the Department of Justice. She said uh, she slammed private prisons, mass incarceration, and said we should double the size of the civil rights division at the DOJ. Now, another big moment at the convention was Mayor Buttigieg's comments on drug policy. He said he wants to legalize marijuana and said that the focus on the opioid epidemic is a good thing. But he asked, where was that same energy when the crack epidemic was affecting predominantly communities of color? Guys? A lot of interesting comments on those subjects, including uh, what we were just talking about, Mary Alice, reparations, Armando. Um, you, were, you were mentioning to us that uh, Bernie Sanders made some news on that front. Uh, what, what was the latest on reparations? Yeah, guys, every single 
candidate has been asked if they would support a commission to study reparations and unanimously every single one has said yes. Now the headline of the day here is uh, the big moment when Senator Sanders seemed to reverse his stance on reparations. He had come under fire for telling our colleagues on the view that there are better ways to address crises than just writing a check. Uh, but today he said that if Congress passes such a bill, he would sign it. Huh, interesting stuff. Armando Garcia for us at the National Action Network Conference and on the campaign trail. We'll see you soon, Armando. Thank you so much. And Mary Alice, you, having been a veteran of covering Bernie Sanders the last go-round, know that he really struggled with appealing to African-American voters. So this appearance at the beginning of his campaign, a second go-round, was really important for him. Absolutely. As will be appearances he does in the Deep South and how he structures his campaign to better address issues um, in minority communities, to change some of his language around around economic policies to make sure that he doesn't sound tone deaf. Uh, and he's tried to take steps, I think, to address that. Even when you just look at the slate of people that are working for him now, much more diverse. And we've seen one of those people spending time, one of his rivals in the South, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, has spent a heck of a lot of time down there. In fact, one of her first tours as, a, as an official candidate was through the Deep South. So interesting. Uh, which was fascinating. Uh, today she made some news at this conference on the filibuster. Yeah. She's one of the um, few senators we've seen come out. Senators usually so protective and defensive of the traditions of the Senate. She came out today and said we should get rid of the filibuster. Right. No more Mrs. Nice Gal. That was her point. Democrats are tired playing nice. They say that Republicans cheat, change the rules. She is all about Democrats doing the same. Let's take a listen. I've watched the Republicans abuse the rules when they're out of power and then turn around and blow off the rules when they're in power. We saw it happen again just this week. Republicans spent years, years exploiting the rules to slow down or block President Obama's mainstream judges and executive nominees. But now that they're in power, they are unilaterally changing those rules to speed them up and run through President Trump's extremist nominees. So let me be as clear as I can about this. When Democrats next have power, we should be bold. We are done with two sets of rules, one for the Republicans and one for the Democrats. It's interesting. Both parties have uh, played, uh, you know, they've pointed the fingers on the rule changes in the Senate. But yep. so far, they have left untouched the filibuster for legislation. They've de they've changed the rules uh, for nominees, Supreme Court nominees, cabinet nominees, and now it just takes a simple majority to get those people confirmed. Of course, some of that dates back to Democratic leader Harry Reid uh, using the nuclear option. But this issue of legislation sailing through the Senate on a simple majority has been sort of a third rail. No one has touched it. She wants to go there. Right. So does the president, actually. They agree on this. Both parties have been extremely frustrated that when legislation comes through from the House with a big majority, is supported in the White House, it often dies in the Senate without reaching that 60-vote threshold. But really interesting, listening to her talk about a need to pitch transformational ideas. We're seeing that more and more from Democrats. They're pitching things like abolishing the Electoral College, expanding the size of the Supreme Court. Some have floated the idea of expanding the size of the House of Representatives. I think we will continue to see Democrats saying that voters want big institutional changes. And changing those rules, just for those uh, to underscore 
the point would make it easier for legislation to get passed. But one of the concerns is there could be too much chaos with the changing of the parties, uh, uh, you know, shifting back and forth on a lot of matters of important policy. Right. The Senate was seen as a way to find consensus, that consensus was important for big sweeping legislation to make it to the president's desk. Uh, speaking of important pieces of policy and legislation, the jobs numbers out today were quite something after a lackluster uh, February. We got the numbers for March today, and this is what the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, had for us. 196,000 jobs were added last month. That's quite a big boost. The unemployment rate uh, uh, holding steady at 3.8 percent, which is uh, which is pretty good news for the president. Yeah. Um, he talked about it today. Of course, he likes to talk about when the numbers are good. Didn't talk about them last month when they were not so good. Yeah, him and every other president. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, just as a footnote today, though, I want to get your take on Herman Cain. Speaking of the economy, good jobs numbers. The president uh, today said that he, or yeah, earlier this week, actually said he's nominating uh, Herman Cain, the godfather pizza founder, to the Federal Reserve Bank. Of course, a failed presidential candidate uh, of 2012, the uh, brainchild of uh, our 999, uh, the 999 <laughs> tax plan. Uh, what do you think about that, Mary Allison? Uh, some controversy there, again, around women and sexual assault allegations. And a lot of Republicans that um, had a hard time not rolling their eyes at this news from the president. It will be really interesting to see the reaction that he gets in the coming days and whether he sticks with this plan. We shall see Herman Cain being considered for the Federal Reserve Board to set the interest rates of the world's largest economy here in the United States. Thanks for joining us here in the briefing room on this Friday. Hope you uh, have a great weekend ahead. Great to have Mary Alice Parks. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. Hope to see you back here Monday, 3.30 Eastern time. See you then.